Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago, I believe it was, I was up in Ames preaching at Life Point Church. Great church up there under the leadership of Pastor Drew and his staff. And uh, while I was gone, our Pastor Drew preached down here. And so their Pastor Drew gave me their pulpit, so we gave our Pastor Drew our pulpit. And he preached on foundations. And I really felt some heat on that some oil on that subject, so we're going to continue in that vein. Uh, and so this whole idea of foundations is foundational. See what I did there? It is, uh, it is foundational to the Christian walk, and Scripture does talk about these two metaphors, these two pictures of foundations and root systems to the Christian life. So we have foundations and root systems, and the thing those two metaphors, those two pictures, illustrations share in common is that what is seen above the ground is dependent upon what is beneath the ground. So what is under the ground will support what is above the ground. And if you don't have the proper support under the ground, you're not going to be able to sustain your Christian witness or your ministry. You're not going to be able to walk the walk unless you have the proper foundation. And so we looked at, matter of fact, that was four weeks ago, and then a, couple, a week after that, we continued in that theme. But uh, I want to continue in that vein. Uh, there's this picture here in Hebrews chapter 6, and this is what it says, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith in God. So he gives us six components to this foundation. Listen to what he says. Repentance from dead works or from works that lead to death is some translations. Uh, faith towards God. Instructions in baptisms. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so we have this outline these six components, and really they can be broken down into three categories. You have repentance and faith go together. These are two sides to the same coin, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Then you have instructions and baptisms and the laying on of hands. In the New Testament, those two things went hand in hand, that people were taken into the water, brought up, and the apostles would lay hands on them for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Not uh, the initial receiving, we receive the Spirit of God in salvation. He is in us, but in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we are in Him. We are literally submersed in the Spirit. And so there was the baptism in water and then the baptism in the Spirit. Now, in this passage, it talks about instructions in baptisms, plural. But Paul said in Ephesians chapter Four, he talked about there's one baptism. So from Paul's perspective, he looked at these baptisms as a package deal. You go down in the water and burial and come up and the spirit comes upon you in resurrection power. And so we have instructions in baptisms. And then we have these other two, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And really what, what the author is doing is he's bookending the Christian life. The Christian life is entered into 
through repentance and faith. We go down in the water to have hands laid on us to receive the Spirit. That is the initial, that, that, that was really the initiation rites of the early church. Baptism was the initiation rite. But at the end of the age, we will have the resurrection and eternal judgment. And we will give account for how we lived our life. We're going to, there, there are two judgments at the end of the age. One for those who don't know Christ and one for those of us who do. And so we will not give, we, we're not going to answer for our sin. That was absorbed at Calvary. But make, make no mistake about it. You will answer for how you stewarded what God gave you. You can put it this way. Heaven as your destination is a free gift. Your rank when you get there is not. You could say it as strongly as it is earned. You will your rank in heaven will be determined by how you stewarded your life. We see this borne out in the parables of Jesus and also in the teachings of Paul where Paul speaks of crowns that will be rewarded. So in a very real sense, our rank, you, you, this picture emerges in the New Testament of our rank in eternity, what we will rule and reign with him over will be determined by how we lived our life here in cooperation with the Spirit, by the Spirit that we cooperated with him, walked and kept in step with the Spirit as Paul said. But then we will receive crowns and those crowns will in turn be laid back at Jesus' feet. It's an amazing thing if you look at it. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about, uh, he, he talks about that our motives will be tested and there will be those who make it through the blast furnace of God's judgment and all they'll have left is ashes. And then there's others who will have gold, silver, and precious stones. So when we stand before God, God will put the sum total of our life lived into the blast furnace of his evaluation and what comes out the other side will be what will be placed upon your head. Ashes all down through human history have been, uh, ashes on the head are indicative of mourning. And there are those who, when they stand before the Lord, will be mourning and grieving over how they lived their life. Scripture says that he will wipe the tears away from our eyes. There will be tears in heaven, and he will wipe them away, but the reason they will be there is because all of us will look back at stolen opportunities and forfeited opportunities, and we're going to look at how we lived our life, and there will be grief in our heart. Some of you went to the Send here a couple weeks ago. I was so moved by Mike Bickle's morning address. He took about 15 minutes and he talked about how when he was 25 years old, he had this dream. And in the dream, he stood before the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and said, you are saved, but your life has been wasted. And in the dream, he said, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Man, I study the word. I, I fast, I pray. I, I, I'm out street witnessing. Lord, I, I didn't waste my life. And as he's saying that, the Spirit of God spoke to him in the dream and said, you cannot manipulate the Son of Man. And he was just trembling and he woke up in a sweat. And the Lord began to speak to him and said, Mike, I want to shock you now 
so you don't have to be shocked later. I'd rather you be shaken now so that you don't have to be shaken later. I want you to be awakened now so that we live our life, that we, we have eternity stamped upon our eyes and that we're living with an eternal perspective because we will be judged by how we live our life. And what the, when you look at it, it says that there are people whose lives, and he's talking about the judging of motives. It's not even so much what you do, but why you do it. There are people that fast and pray and street witness and they do ministry and they help the poor, but they do it, in Jesus' words, to be seen of men. And Jesus said, you have received your reward. You got saw. I know that's not good English, but it's good preaching. You were seen and that was your reward. And that represents that, that, that wood, hay, and stubble, that which is before the ground and it will be burned up and consumed and there'll be nothing left. And then there's those hidden things that you have to mine out of the ground, gold, silver, and precious stones. They're not seen of men. It's doing the right things for the right reasons. And out of those gold, silver, and precious stones that are tried by fire in God's fiery evaluation, I believe that is what our crowns will be molded out of. And if you think about it in this way, literally, your crown, God will reduce your entire life into a fixture that he places upon your head. And what will we do with it? We'll give it to him all over again. It's going to be an amazing thing when we stand before him and see him face to face. And in that moment, we're going to wish we had more to offer him. It's like we're going to say, Lord, this is the sum total of everything I lived, everything I did for you. And Lord, I lay it at your feet again because you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And we're going to wish we had more. And so the author, now a lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews. I kind of think Apollos did. We'll see. We'll see when we get to heaven. We really don't know. Uh, but whoever wrote it, his point is he's bookending the Christian life. The initiation rites and the summation of when we enter into our eternal abode through the judgment. And so we have this picture. Now, in this, he's, listen to what he says. He said, let us leave. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's not saying discard it. He's not saying we're done with these elementary teachings. It, uh, it's... It literally means the foundational or the, the, uh, the introductory teachings. It's like the basic math so you can work, move into the more complicated, complex math. You don't ever lose uh, two plus two is four if you want to do trigonometry. But you don't want to have to keep going over the same lessons. And that's what the author is getting at. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation. So listen to the, the language he says. He, he talks about elementary, maturity, foundation. What he's alluding to is there are stages of progress in the Christian life. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He, he talks to those who are carnal or mere babes in Christ. Then he talks to those who are the, the King James Version translates it natural man. The NIV is a poor translation. It says the man without the spirit. That is not what the Greek is communicating. It's saying the man of the soul. The, it, it's pneumatikis or something like that. I don't speak Greek. I know a little Greek. He runs a 
food shop. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, that, bad joke. Okay, the uh, but the the, the pneumaticus, what or the uh, no psychikos. It's the man of the soul. In other words, he's talking about the man of the soul cannot receive the things of God. That's what it says. Some translations. Like the NIV says, the man without the spirit. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when you live from your soul, your own mind, will, and emotions, when you lean on your own intellect, your own emotions, and your own will to discern the will of God, you can't receive the things of God. If God has to appease your intellect in order for you to bow your knee to his word, then you will not receive the things of God. You will put a lid on how far you can go. At best, you will be an adolescent believer. So he says, the carnal man, he's talking about the man of the flesh when we live for our fleshly desires. And there is such a thing as a carnal Christian, but understand it's a stage and not a a way of life. It's not that type of person. When I got saved, many of you have heard me tell my testimony. I was a homeless alcoholic. I got saved. The lady who led me to the Lord gave me money for a Bible. I bought a keg instead. I was, I was still, I was bound to my flesh. I wasn't yet free. The only difference before I got saved and after I got saved initially in my behavior externally was that before I drank and I enjoyed it, after I got saved, I drank and was miserable because there was something in me saying, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to be like you. I I want to please you with my life. And there was something in me that was at odds with my behavior. It was the life of God deep in my spirit. And so I was still carnal. I was a mere babe. I was an infant in Christ. But we quickly grow out of infancy, and if a baby, we were at a, we had a, the staff were talking this morning with coffee and donuts, it was glorious, and uh, we were sitting around talking this morning, and Hoel and Kara's little Talia was there. She is the chubbiest little thing. I mean, she's got, you know how baby knuckles are? They're kind of indented. There's this little puffy hand like marshmallow, and then their, their knuckles are indented. She's got indentations on her knees. I mean, she's, and then she has another roll in her thigh. I told him, that's what I'm working for. I'm moving towards it, man. And if I live another week like I did last week, I'll have the thighs ready for the dunk tank, you know? Yeah, anyways, I digress. But she just this chubby little girl. We were talking about how when you raise kids, you're not really raising kids, you're raising adults. When you plant a seed, you're not trying to raise another seed. You're trying to, if you plant a, a kernel of corn, you're trying to raise a stock. You're not hoping another little seed will pop out and then you just reproduce what? No, you're raising children, and, or raising stocks, and we're not raising children, we're raising adults. And so we're not just to protect them, we're to prepare them. And we were talking about that, and I said this phrase, I had a friend used to say that dads can't wait till their kids grow up and moms never want them to. And I thought, I don't think that's true. Because I'd give anything if, I'm going to cry. This girl on the front row would have stayed three years old and had her little chubby knees. But that would have been unhealthy for her. (laughs) But I would have loved it. Having my chubby little girl, my kids, I wish I could have froze them at about three years old. They were so cute. Then they get a mind of their own, you know what I mean? But but that wouldn't be healthy for them. And in fact, if my 25-year-old daughter was still that tall, it would warrant medical intervention. 
we'd say there's something wrong here. And the same is true spiritually. If a believer still looks like an infant, there was grace all over my life when I bought that keg. And I sat and cried in my beer and cried out to God while I was drinking. I was bound to alcohol. But there was something in my heart saying, Jesus, deliver me. I literally sat and cried drinking that keg. That was okay. Do I endorse that behavior? No, but the grace of God was working in me. That was okay. I'd been saved about a week and a half to two weeks. Almost 40 years later, that wouldn't be okay. If you gave me money for a Bible and found out I spent the Bible money on a keg, you need to talk to the elders of the house. We need to discuss my removal. <laughs> it warrants intervention. And so we're to grow. There's infant Christianity. They're mere babes in Christ. They're carnal. It means that as a Trinitarian being, we're, we're body, soul, and spirit. Initially, we start out just living for our soul, just doing whatever, I mean, our, our body rather. Whatever our body wants, our body gets. And our soul is drug along for the ride. And even after I got saved, my spirit was drugged saying, no, 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 all the way to the liquor store. But as I began to learn to deny my flesh, Paul said, by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. As we begin to learn to walk in the spirit, we begin to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We tell our body where to go. We grab it by the nap of the neck. Sometimes we fast. You're hungry? Well, good. You're not eating. You're going to do what I say for a while. Gonna, you need to lose some weight. Don't say amen. You're, you know, you're dragging it around. And so you make your body do what it's meant to do. But a lot of believers think that once they move out of that fleshly living that they are now mature. But Paul tells us otherwise. The man of the soul cannot receive the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. We are to be spiritual. What does that mean? What is, you know, spiritual, what does that mean? It simply means that we live from our spirit which is in communion with God. That our value system is of the spirit and not of the soul or the flesh. I've quoted this before, but I just love it. It was out of one of Tozer's book. He said, there's a place in God where, well, your heart goes into worship. Your head needs to humbly wait outside because it's not allowed in. It's beyond you. You just got to bend your knee to the mystery of who he is. That's being spiritual. We're led by the Spirit. There are times God will lead us to do things we don't understand. He'll never lead you to contradict his book. But he may contradict your interpretation of his book. That will force you to go back and begin to read the word and see. But if it doesn't line up with the book, it's not God. Or your interpretation is incorrect and you need to guard your conscience and not do it until you get your theology correct. Does that make sense? Okay. So, there are stages of maturity in the Christian life. So, spiritual adulthood is living from your spirit or what we call being spiritual. 
Spiritual infancy is being carnal, living for your flesh. And again, that is a, an initial stage in a lot of people's lives to varying degrees depending on the type of lifestyle you're coming out of. But if that is a permanent fixture in your life after months and years, then you probably need to get saved. You probably need to have a revelation of who he really is and surrender your life to him. And I say that with all love. So adolescent Christianity is living by your own understanding. But adulthood, maturity, it's what the author here is saying that we need to move on from. Let's move on from the elementary truths and move into maturity. So he says, the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So we have these, these, these two elements, repentance and faith, and they are the way we enter into the Christian life. Again, all through the New Testament, it's repent and believe, repent and believe. It's not just believe and it's not just repent. If you merely have repentance without faith, you'll be in despair because repentance will reveal your own bankrupt condition. Repentance is a response to seeing ourselves for what we really are outside of Christ. But faith without repentance will produce shallow root systems that is never unhinged from self. And when the hard times come, you will fall. We see in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matter of fact, this was Pastor Drew's text a few weeks ago. Uh, it, we used to sing the song when I was a little kid. The wise man built his, how many of you know that song? We should sing it right now. Ben, no, it's good. It, uh, the wise man builds his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. It was a song we sang out of Matthew 7. And as the rains came down, the floods came up, the rains came down, the flood came up and the house on the rock stood firm. But the foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rock was this, but this was the sand. And the rains came and the floods and the rain and the flood and the house on the, and this is the part we loved. And the house on the sand, we'd yell, splat! It didn't stand. And then we'd say, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ as the prayers go up and the blessings will come down and your life will be firm. It's from that passage. And Jesus explicitly says in that passage, he who hears the, this teaching of mine, so he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he said, if you'll build your life just on that, then you will have firm ground to build your life on. And when the storms of life come, and they will, then you will stand strong. But if you don't build it on the rock, on those teachings, then when the storms come, your life will crumble. And he uses the analogy of sand versus stone, or digging down to bedrock. When you build, you have to analyze the ground upon which you build. And depending on the terrain, it will demand a different type of building. Where we built, we could just build a basement, put down the, the trenches and pour the basement and we're fine. But if you build in a, a sandy environment, you've got to put down uh, concrete pylons Till you can hit some bedrock because you don't want to build on sand. Why? Because sand moves. 
It shifts. And rock doesn't. It's stable. And the picture Jesus is getting at is we build our life on his objective word. Not on the shifting opinions of culture. I was just talking yesterday to a pastor who'd reached out. He was dealing with a situation with one of his leaders. And one of his like board members stepped down after they got in a little discussion with the pastor. And the discussion was about human sexuality. And he was saying, we've got to hold to the word. And the Bible teaches that homosexual relationships are sin. Relationships of fornication are sin. That's what the Bible teaches. That sexual intimacy is reserved for one relationship and one relationship only between a married man and a woman. And their anatomy itself tells them that's what they were created for. They fit together beautifully. It's an amazing thing. But the intensity and the radical Intimacy that results from that type of union can only be handled by the tremendous commitment that says, till death do us part. And if you don't have that kind of commitment, you don't need to be entering into that. We were talking on the phone, I was saying to him that there's a reason when the Bible, there's two, two beautiful poetic ways the New Testament describes sexual intimacy. And they knew each other. It's talking about that, that intimacy that happens in sexual union. There is an intimacy that is realized there that is not realized anywhere else. The other one is, and they became one. There is a melding together of two people. And now, science has proven the truth of that. They now have discovered that a, a female will carry some of the DNA of her sexual partners in her blood system. There is a deposit. So there's, there's a becoming one spirit, soul, and body that we don't understand in our small minds. We have to take God's word for it. But there is a tremendous melding and intimacy that takes place. So this thing called casual sex that's like talking about jumbo shrimp or baby grand pianos. That's a contradiction. Casual oneness. Hey, let's become one casually. It doesn't happen. There's no, nothing casual about it. And that's why God says commitment on the front end and then consummation on the back end, not vice versa. And so we're talking about this and see what, they, what had happened is this particular uh, leader in their church, uh, as they found out the pastor's stand on things, they really took issue with it and said, I, 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 can't, I can't call somebody else's, the way that they operate in relationships, sin. They went on to say, I cannot go to the place where I could declare my living with, because they lived with their spouse before they were married. They said, I, I, can't, I can't bring myself to call that sin. So when the pastor began to talk about the word, the person stopped them and said, wait a minute, I don't build my life on the word, 
I go by what I feel. And that's the problem right there. And it's good that that person stepped down from leadership. And they all said, amen. Because if you don't believe, if you don't build things on the word, all you have is the shifting sand of cultural opinion. And what was wrong before becomes right now. There was a time in this nation where it was legal to enslave another human being and treat them like they were part of your livestock. And people said, well, it's okay, it's legal. That doesn't make it moral. That is the shifting sand of human opinion. There, now we say, oh, well, it's okay. It's legal to kill a baby in its mother's womb. There are now legislators looking at giving you 30 days after the birth of your child for you to determine whether you want to let it live or not. It is horrendous. That is the shifting sands of human opinion. So we need something greater, something firm, something unchanging to build our life upon. And that is the bedrock of God's objective word. Again, there is the living word, Jesus, and the written word, the scriptures, the Bible. And the Bible is the written expression of who Jesus is. And I'm telling you, you can get in the Bible and you can encounter the living God through the word. It's an amazing thing that he will show up. You start immersing yourself. There are times I've read the word. I remember when I first got saved, I'd be reading the Bible and I'd think, I understand nothing of this, but I would feel his presence come on me. And I didn't understand what I read, but I knew that I had encountered him in the process. No, I don't want to surrender to that and say, I don't understand. I needed him. I, I needed, I had to keep at it. I needed to understand the word. I needed to go to other believers that understood. I needed to show, study to show myself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed. But the fact is, the written word is the print. It, it is an expression of God's character in written form. And Jesus is the living expression of his word. He is the word. And so when we're talking about we can build our life, Jesus said, on this teaching, which we have codified in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're building our life on the word. But Paul talks about no man can lay any other foundation but Jesus Christ. Is that a contradiction? Well, he's talking about the Bible and he's talking about Jesus. No, it's the word. The living word, John chapter one, the word was with God and was God and became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. And the word, the Bible, again, I need that leather book right now. That, wave it, Roger. It's that, the, the word, it's just much more dramatic that way. It's building our life on the word. And if we don't believe the word, it's very hard for God to access your heart and correct you. Doesn't mean it's impossible. You know how he does it? Circumstances. You can sign up for either one. It's up to you. Personally, I'd rather get it through Bible study. Thank you. What is it? Psalm 42. Do not be like the horse or the mule who must be steered with bit and bridle. God says, I would guide you with mine eye. 
I love that. He said, I want to lead you with a look. Now, I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised with parents that could lead me with a look. My dad was a pastor, and we'd be goofing around in the back. I remember one time, my brother John, I, I, wear a, I grow a beard now. Back then, I was a little boy. I wanted a beard. So my brother got a magic marker and drew a beard on my face <laughs> during worship. And suddenly, my mom turned around and sought. And uh, she led me with war and a look, okay? I was drug out of the service. And she scrubbed my face so hard that I then had a, right, a red beard. The, the marker was gone, but my skin, my face was all red. But my mom and dad, I don't know why I got into that. But my mom and dad could look at us and I knew, uh-oh, I'm being led with the look. There was an intimacy and a familiarity with my mom and dad that we knew. And if we'll be corrected with a look, we don't have to be corrected by circumstance. A horse and a mule, if you think about it, you ever put a bit in a bridle in a horse's mouth? How many of you ever done that? It, it's not a pleasant thing for the horse. Because you're taking a metal rod with two eye rings at the end and there's leather straps in it and you strap this thing upon their long face and then you put that metal rod in their mouth and you pull it towards the back and then if you want to ride along and you want to go right, you cause pain in the right side to turn their head and they begin to understand, oh, I can save myself pain if there's a little pull on the right side, I'm going to cooperate. And if there's pain on the left side, I'm going to cooperate. You can either be led by pain or led by the word. There are some horses that are so well trained that they can literally maneuver the horse by just moving their legs in and out on the rib cage. Ironically, they're called meeked. M-E-E-K. They're meek horses. Highly trained horses. Some of those horses are so highly trained that they'll literally stand inside a burning barn and die if they're not given the orders to leave. They've been meeked. Blessed are the meek. And so God wants to lead us through his word, but if we're not, if we're not open to his word, God loves us enough that he'll introduce circumstances that will cause pain to steer us in the right direction. Because he's a good father. And what he's trying to do is keep us from the ultimate pain of eternity. And so this thing begins with repentance. The Christian life. Most of us came to Jesus because of an awareness that, of something in our life that I need him. Now, I do hear people that came to Jesus. They were happy with their life. But when they recognized they recognize the Lord. They have this revelation. They come into saving faith, and it's a glorious thing. I don't understand people like that. I, I think that's awesome. I wish I would have been more like that. But God had to, I, I told someone the other day, the Lord anointed an angry group of cowboys to pummel me into submission. I got beat up really bad about a month and a half before I got saved. My nose was over here. And it's hard to wear glasses when your nose is over there, you know. And uh, it was just not a good thing. After I got my new nose, a buddy of mine pushed me and mine broke my nose again and my new glasses. And I woke up on a Sunday morning in a strange place. And the first thought in my mind was, I should be in church. It was the pain of that that awakened my heart. 
And that's when people started witnessing to me everywhere I went. And I believe God orchestrated all of that in his, he's a good father. He was orchestrating that to bring me home. But I had to come to repentance. So what is repentance and faith? Repentance is recognizing and owning who we really are outside of Christ. It's embracing that reality. You see, there's, a, there's this thing afoot in the church today that talks about, oh, I'm a person of faith, but there's no fruit in their life. And it's because they believe facts, but they haven't repented. They are still hinged to self and living from a self-center. And repentance is what will unhinge you from self and cause you to begin to live from the center of Christ. Repentance will cause you to be disillusioned with your own ability to run your life. To the point where you say, God, I need help. I, I, am, I am undone. I have made a royal mess of my life. I need you. But like I said earlier, repentance without faith is simply despair. Faith without repentance produces the shallow embracing of facts, but it doesn't really put its trust in God. You see, faith is more than just believing the facts of the gospel. Romans 1, I want to say it's verse 5. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. James puts it this way, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you're not living what you say you believe, it's, Paul, or James says, even the demons believe, but they're not saved. It's not giving mental assent to a group of facts. It's, faith would be better translated trust. Have you entered into trusting him? Not just with your eternity. You can't compartmentalize this thing. I trust him with my eternity, just not my life. It's not saving faith. When you trust him, repentance and faith, repentance says, I am disillusioned in my own ability. I need saved. I'm gonna flee from this. I don't want anything to do with this lifestyle. We touched on this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. 2 Corinthians chapter, I wanna say it's chapter seven. 2 Corinthians seven. Paul talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And godly sorrow, it says, look at what godly sorrow hath wrought in you. What alarm, what willingness to see justice done. He enumerates a bunch of things that are the fruit of godly sorrow. And, the, and then he says, but worldly sorrow uh, leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and has no regret. So the difference is this. Godly sorrow becomes sorry about the things it has done. It regrets what it did. And it said, I don't want anything to do with that kind of behavior. I don't want to be like that anymore. We can't save ourselves, but we can recognize, by the grace of God, the state of our life. Worldly sorrow says, I'm really bummed that it turned out this way. If I could find out a way to continue in this behavior without the consequences, I'd think that's a win. It's sorry about the consequences. And when that happens, you hear people saying these kind of things. Well, I don't know why I have to do... Man, I have friends that do these things and none of this ever happens to them when you talk to them about the Lord. 
Well, I don't think Jesus is always the answer. I can, you know, I have friends that, and see what they're wanting to do is hold on to the behavior, but get out of the consequences. And I'm here to tell you that the consequences of sin are a gift from God to cause pain enough to steer us in the right direction. So when we repent, we see our life for what it is, and then faith, we place our trust in him. And when we place our trust in him, we trust him enough to lead our lives. We realize, I can't lead my life. I, see, one of the gifts I had was I, I was a real bonehead before I got saved. See, some of you, you weren't as big a bonehead, so it was harder to convince you. I really made a mess of my life. No one had to tell me. No one had to convince me. You're, you're a bonehead. I mean, it was real easy for the Lord to bring me to that. Well, it wasn't easy, but once I came, I was thoroughly convinced. I, I surrendered. Lord, give me, help me out here. Then we place our trust in him. And faith trusts him to lead us. It trusts him to call the shots because we know we can't. Whenever I talk about repentance and faith, I, I think about this story. When, when I was at Teen Challenge, I, I went on staff at Teen Challenge in 1988, and it was this old hotel that was built back in the 1800s, and there was part of it left that we had. It had become a monastery. It had become a house of ill repute for a while. It was a pig palace where they sold pigs out of the rooms. It was weird. And uh, it was all kinds of things, and then Teen Challenge. So I'm sure all those little things would preach somehow. But anyway, we, uh, when we had it, there was this laundry room, and, and we had about 60 guys living there plus a staff, and we all used this laundry room to do our laundry. Well, the laundry facility, I mean, this was some old equipment. There was this huge dryer. It was this big green iron dryer, and you'd light it in this flame, and go out the side. You'd put your sweater in, it'd come out this big. It's now for Ken doll, you know? And uh, I mean, this thing was... But before you did that, you'd put it in this washer, and it would go, it would, it would wash the, the stuff around, and then you'd put it in this spin dryer, and the lid was gone. So it had this lid that was supposed to lock, and it wasn't supposed to spin around if the lid wasn't locked. Well, the lid was long gone. And you could hear that thing all over the building when it began to spin. You knew it was laundry time. So you'd take your, your clothes out of the washer. Well, the way you did it, you'd fill it with water, and there was written in, in ink on the wall, hot, cold, and these bent pieces of metal that were welded to these rocks, hot, cold. And then you'd fill it, you'd pour in some soap, and, and then you'd drain it, and you keep putting water back and forth until you saw no more suds. Well, I guess it's done. Then you'd take your dripping clothes, and you'd put them in that spin dryer, and you'd arrange them all around that drum and it had the tube coming up, you know, it was just like a regular, and it was holes all along the side and it was in a larger drum and it would start spinning. And it would spin so fast it would suck it against the side and all the water would drip out and then you'd put it in the blast for it and you'd get your tiny clothes out. That was laundry. We had a student named Frank. Remember him, Randy? Frank. So Frank, Frank's the laundry guy one day and he's sitting in the side of the room and he has all the stuff evenly distributed around. And he realized, oh, I forgot to put this washcloth in. 
But he was too lazy to get up, turn it off, and evenly distribute it. He thought, I'll just toss it across the room. So Frank was a pretty good shot, big old boy. He threw it across the room, and he got a hole in one. It went right into the dryer. The problem is, when it hit the side, the center of that spin now had a new center because it threw everything off. So now this dryer wanted to spin across the, around the new center in the side. There were bolts literally this big in the ground. They snapped. It was like dynamite went off. Boom! That thing spun across the room and hit the concrete wall. They were able to use it after that. But it took some fixing. And I'm, I, whenever I think of that story, I think of that's how we are living in God's world. For things to work, we live and move and have our being in him. He is the center. And as long as we spin around him, everything works. But you and I weren't satisfied with that arrangement. We're that wet little washcloth. We want to be the center. And the whole thing blows up. And it's repentance that causes us to say, I no longer have to be the center of my life. I'm willing to yield my life to a God who is wiser than I. I trust him to run my life. And it's for this reason that James says, faith without works is dead. Or Paul says, talks about the obedience of faith. True faith produces obedience because true faith is I trust him, I trust his character. And when I trust his character, I trust his word. And I read his word and say, oh, I don't agree with that. I'm the problem, not the word. I need to adjust my belief system around the word. I don't need to adjust the word around my belief system. I'm not gonna make the Bible shifting sand that changes with cultural opinion. I'm going to read the word and let it confront me. I'm going to let it challenge me. Now, there's people, the, the example I gave earlier about slavery, there's people that say, oh, you know, the, the church preached slavery. It was the church and actually the revival movement of the Second Great Awakening that became the abolitionist movement and which resulted in the Second World War. And the South resisted that revival. That revival burned in the North. It was a tremendous revival under Charles Finney and a lot of lesser known people. And they resisted it in the South. And when revival, in the, the, the uh, Civil War, revival really burned through the Southern troops. God brought them to their knees. Matter of fact, one of the, the great revivalists in the South was a man by the name of E.M. Bounds. Everybody, anybody ever heard of him? He was in the South. And so there was this tremendous move of God, of men who read the word and said, this cannot be, this is wrong. And we're not gonna side with culture to keep the peace. We're gonna stand on the word. And so we need to allow the word to correct us. Repentance and faith. Repentance is, God, I no longer wanna run my life. Lord, I see in your word these things, and I realize my life doesn't align with your word. Lord, I repent. I'm asking you, give me grace to bring my behavior up to your standard. Yeah. Lord, I turn from these things. For me, it wasn't immediate. 
When I, I, I kept getting drunk, but I began to cry out, God, help me. I am bound to this. I need your help. And God began to deliver me. And he began to work on those things. One of the first things that did fall away was drinking. It was the more internal sins of uh, you know, unbelief and, and uh, jealousy and uh, bitterness and all those things that really were the hard ones to overcome. But we, we allow the Lord to work in our heart. But there is no repentance without faith and there is no faith without repentance. Let me, let me show you another passage from Scripture that bears this out. Matthew 13, Jesus' parable of the soils. Whereas in Hebrews 6, it talks about foundations. What's below the ground will sustain or support what's built above the ground. In Matthew chapter 13, he's talking about seeds that burst forth and produce root systems that can hold what's above the ground. We talked about it several weeks ago about the trees. And those roots need to go down deep. In Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about foundations below the ground, sustaining the building above the ground when the storm hits. In Matthew 13, he talks about the sun coming out and the second seed is that of the stony ground here. There, it looks like good soil. There's soil on the surface that receives the seed and it understands the seed. Because it's gotten past the first one that doesn't even understand. And it receives it gladly. And it springs up and brings forth leaves. And it looks like, man, this is going to be great. This thing's really taking root. But the problem is, below the surface, where the eye can't see, are unyielding stones beneath the surface. That the, the roots can't get down through the stones. So what they do is they go outward among, across the stones to drink up all the moisture on the surface. They're shallow roots. And when the sun comes out and begins to bake, the plants that don't have those unyielding stones underneath the surface begin to dig down deep and grow their root system to find more nourishment. And they mature and they become strong. And the ones that don't, the ones that have those unyielding stones, they begin to die because the surface ground is dried up and they shrivel up and they fall over. It's the same scenario. They can't make it in the hard times. This thing of repentance and faith is crucial. If you want to be in this thing for the long term, if you want to believe till the end, there is a place in God to go back and do the first works. In fact, we're never done repenting because there's always new areas that God's going to show us in our hearts and we've got to align our life. And I'm telling you, God is a good father. He loves you. And he will warn you and he will highlight his word and he'll have people like me preach like I'm preaching this morning. But if you won't listen to it, then he will allow the fruit of your wrong decisions to cause pain in your life to get your attention again. And if you ignore that, it'll increase. And if you're not experiencing poor, bad consequences of poor decisions, then you need to really fear. Because Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. 
The discipline of the Lord is for our good. Jesus put it this way. Fruitful vines are pruned so they can be more fruitful. And during those times, we've got to yield to the Lord. Why am I preaching about this? Because I'm concerned about the future of this church and even more so of, the, of, the, of this nation, rather, and even more so about the churches of this nation. I'm concerned that there's a lot of faith with very little repentance. That there's a lot of people that have jumped in and they believe some facts, but when the hard time comes, they begin to shrivel up and die. If you are still running your own life and you know that your life is violating the word of God, then you're in a dangerous place and you need to cry out to God and say, God, awaken my heart. I want to respond to you. Lord, I'm asking you. I've used to pray this a lot and thank God I don't have to pray it as much as I used to, but I mean, this used to be a daily prayer. God, I don't wanna, but I wanna wanna. God, I know your word says this and I don't wanna do it, but God, I wanna wanna. Lord, if you'll give me the want to. I remember telling the Lord early on in my walk with him. I said, God, I don't love you and I don't want to serve you. But Lord, I know you have what I need and I need you to change me. I can't do it myself. I'm asking you, if you will give me the want to, I'm going to go through the motions until you do. I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to gut out this team challenge program. I'm going to stay in the word and I'm asking you, God, deal with my heart. And God, I tell you what, if, if I was God and someone said that to me, I'd have flicked them. I thank God. You need to thank God. I'm not God. He is so gracious for me to tell him the audacity for me to tell God in a sincere prayer. I don't love you and I don't want to serve you, but I need what you have. You talk about consumer mentality. But it was a desperate prayer that God himself born in me. And God responded. I'm telling you, if you don't wanna, but you wanna wanna, God will give you the want to. If you humble yourself and ask. If you say, God, there's a part of me that still resists your will. I'm telling you that if you will begin to cry out, God, give me the want to. It's an amazing thing. God not only tells us what to do, he puts within us a desire to do so. How does Paul put it? He gives us both to will and to do. To want it and to perform it. He will give you the want to. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself that there's parts of your heart that are in rebellion against him, I'm telling you, there is a, a good father that wants to grace you, to give you the power, not just to do it, but to do it gladly because you'll want to. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I'm asking that you would brood over us Lord, I ask that we would not be a church of shallow roots, people that wither in the sun or houses that crash in the storm. God, we want to stand strong as a testimony of your grace and power. So Lord, I'm asking that you would deal with us. And I want every head bowed. I want privacy this morning.
If there are areas of your life right now that you're in rebellion, you know you're outside of God's will, and you've been living there, knowing it, and you're saying, God, I want you to give me the want to. I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Yeah, all over this room. Anybody else? Yeah, you can put your hand down. You can put your hand down. Father, I'm asking, God, that you would grace these right now. Lord, as they've humbled themselves upon the authority of your word, we claim the grace you give to the humble. We posture our hearts before you, Lord. We own our weakness. And Lord, help us to trust you. God, give us the want to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.